Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. You know, it's great when during the worship, God speaks so clearly. And uh, here, although we plan the preaching somewhat in advance, we, we know what we want to be teaching on, we don't make a big deal of it and we don't tend to publish that very widely. The people preaching tend to know, but not many other people. And yet week after week, in the worship, God starts to prepare our hearts for what is going to be preached on. And this morning, sorry, I wrote upside down, um, God has already been speaking about people finding happiness in their life. What it is that brings happiness. And this morning, we're going to be hearing about a guy who found that. We've been hearing this morning already about preparation, about our hearts being prepared. And again, that is so relevant this morning. Now, I'm probably going to do a couple of things this morning, because I don't often use a mic when I'm preaching, or not a handheld one. So I am probably going to trip over it at some point, okay? And I may well get to a point where I walk forward and cause feedback. So you have my apologies in advance if I do either of those. But this morning, we're not doing what we often do at this point of the year. You know, the natural thing to do as you enter a new year is to look forward and say, this is our vision, this is what we're going for. And uh, it was very tempting to do that this morning. Because I think we have a tremendous year ahead of us. But instead, that's what we're going to do on Wednesday the 18th in the evening. This morning, we're going to start with a first. It's the first of a new series which fits in well because it's our first week in a new venue, it's our first week in a new part of town. And so it's good that it's our first week looking at something fresh. And what we're going to be looking at during this term is some of the questions that Jesus asked people. We're going to look at that over the next few weeks and I hope we will see how insightful they were. Because what we have to bear in mind is that Jesus didn't need to ask questions. That was demonstrated several times in the Gospels. He knew a lot. Through the power of the Holy Spirit working in his life, he had gifting beyond what we see. We see it when he saw Nathaniel approaching and he got a word of knowledge and he said, I see this man coming and he's got a good heart. We see it with the woman at the well when he got a word of knowledge there. 
And yet Jesus time and time again, as we went through, as, he, as we looked through the Gospels, asked questions, even though you can often see he already knew the answer. And I think the reason he did that was because asking the question made people consider their answer and revealed something deeper about themselves. And so as we look at these questions, as we consider them, it may be that it will help us find out something deeper about ourselves. This morning, the passage we're going to look at is one right near the beginning of Mark's Gospel. You know, the Gospel of Mark is probably amongst the four the most vivid and the dramatic of them. It doesn't have the long teaching sections in it, like the Sermon of the Mount, which you find in Matthew and you find in Mark. uh, Sorry, you find in Matthew. Mark is a shorter Gospel. And because of that, it goes through some of the events much more quickly. Things just seem to move. You know, sometimes you see a film and it's a bit slow getting going at the beginning. Mark's Gospel is not like that. You hit things head on right from the very start. And so, often, the most penetrating questions that Jesus asked are at the very heart of Mark's description of events. So I'm going to read to you from Mark chapter 2 and the first 12 verses. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they couldn't get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they'd made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had lust questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. These 12 verses hold so much. 
And in there, Jesus asks a two-part question. The first part of it is, why are you thinking these things? The second part is, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Now, bear in mind, Jesus, when he asks these questions, doesn't do it because he needed the information. We know that from these other passages. But here, Jesus didn't ask the teachers of the law, why are you thinking these things? Because he didn't know. But rather because he wanted them to answer the question. To get them to consider what it was that they believe about God. He wanted them to think about whether what they believed about God led them to believe and to reject the possibility that their sins could be forgiven and as a result give up their belief in hope. To put it another way, he was asking them, what is it you believe about God? What sort of God do you serve? I mean, many people who have a religious heritage, who are familiar with church, can possess a distorted view of the grace of God. And that is at the root of this question that Jesus is asking. Why are you thinking these things? The second part of Jesus' question is far more logical. Because he was asking them to draw a conclusion. And then as a result he acted just to prove the point. Because he was saying, if I can do the apparently impossible... If I can bring healing to this man who has never walked in his life, doesn't it seem more possible that I can do the easier, invisible thing? But before we look at these questions, let's just look at a bit of background. In the passage we're told that Jesus was at home in Capernaum. A lot of translations say in the house, but it's often held that this means at home. We know that Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Capernaum and Nazareth aren't that far from each other. And Luke tells us in chapter 4 that Jesus returned to his hometown, Nazareth, after his baptism and his time in the wilderness. But what happened there was he was so thoroughly rejected by the people that he grew up with that he couldn't do any miracles there. And so he left Nazareth and he made Capernaum a small fishing village on the Sea of Galilee, his home base for the three years of his public ministry. Different commentators put different emphasis on what this expression of being at home means. It could be, in fact, it was where his mother and his brothers were now living. It could be that they'd moved to Capernaum. Or it could be 
that it was a house in which he had a room. It might have been the home of Simon Peter's family. He might have even had his own house. We just don't know. But the homes in that day weren't particularly large. But they were made of stone walls and then across the top there would be wooden beams that supported a thatched roof made of straw and then covered with clay. There were often stairs up one of the outside walls because that enabled the roof to be used a bit like a patio when the weather was hot. And so this was probably a small house. And so when it talks about a crowd filling it, it was probably 50. might have been 100. But they were spilling out into the street because it says you couldn't even get near the door. So what these men did was they went round the back. They climbed up that exterior stairway and got on the roof. They dug a hole through the clay. They moved aside the thatch to open up a hole between the wooden beams. And then somehow they lowered their friend down on the mattress that he was being carried on. Now one of the things Jesus did was everywhere he went he looked for faith. He saw it when he saw a woman who was suffering from bleeding reach out and touch him. He saw it when he met a centurion whose daughter was sick. And because he looked for it, wherever Jesus went, he saw faith, he discovered it, and he recognised it. In fact, he had a wonderful way of seeing faith when people might not have even been aware of it themselves. But why did Jesus conclude that he was seeing faith as this man was lowered through a hole in the roof in front of him? If you were going to go and visit some famous teacher who had quite a large following, who possessed some degree of fame, and if you wanted to treat him as respectfully as the Jews were taught to treat their rabbis, and if you wanted him to heal your friend, I think you would want to make a good impression right from the start. Would you turn up at the house where he was staying? And because it was hard to get close because of the crowd, nip round the back, smash the patio door to get in. I don't think you would. In fact, that's the last thing you do. The last thing you would do is start to tear up his house. It's counterintuitive. It goes against reason to destroy his house and then ask him for a favour. But I think it is that counterintuitiveness, that defiance of reason that Jesus read as faith. Because these men, the men who lowered this man, had evidently heard him talk about himself. 
We know he had said he was the son of man who had come to seek and to save that which was lost. He said he was the shepherd. He was the shepherd who would leave the 99 who were in the pen to go and look for the one who was still lost and desperate. He said he was the physician. The physician who'd come for the sick rather than for the well. And throughout his early teaching in Galilee, Jesus made the point time and time again that needy, broken, hurting and desperate people were the very ones he had come for. They were the ones on whom his ministry was focused. He pointed out that he was God's representative to meet their needs. And you know, these four men were audacious enough to believe that. By making that hole in the roof, by lowering their friend, they were boldly saying, if you say so, we are going to trust that you care more about people than you do about this house. So much so that we're going to tear a hole in your roof and put before you one of the very kinds of people that you say you've come to help. They believed the things that he had been saying about himself. And they acted on that belief. They were willing to go to lengths that other people would question. And I think it's exciting that as we start out in a new area of Doncaster, we need to remind ourselves that this is true today for the community around us. That Jesus came for each and every one of them. And in particular, for the broken, for the sick, for the hurting, and for the dispirited. The question is, is there anything in your faith as bold as those four men? In Genesis 32, we read about Jacob. He wrestles with the angel of the Lord. This is one of the theophanies, one of the pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. But Jacob was so passionate and so bold that he hold on to, held on to this man all night. In fact, he said, I will not let go unless you bless me. You know, we too can have that sort of passion if we believe his promises, if our belief is based on the fact that he can help us break out of the ruts that we are in and do the bold thing. In Matthew 11 it says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men take hold of it. It's boldness, it's action that brings in the kingdom. Boldness in prayer. Haven't we over the years seen 
some tremendous answers to prayer. We're told, ask and it will be given. And so the bolder we are in asking, the bigger the answers will become. There needs to be a boldness in our relationship with God. The way in which we come into his presence. In fact, the way in which we confront him and insist on his presence. There needs to be a boldness in telling him that we are going to take his word seriously and ask him to do the same. You know, the hole in the roof wasn't a problem for Jesus. People had always been and remain far more, far more important than buildings to him. So what he saw when the roof was opened up in front of him and this man was lowered was faith. Faith in the choices made by those men. If we just for a moment take a step further back and look not at the details but at the whole account this is a quite peculiar story. Because there's a number of things in it that seem to remain unaddressed. The first question I get left with is, what made this paralysed man's situation suddenly become so urgent? We're told Jesus was at home. He had been travelling, but now he was back in his hometown and there wasn't any indication he was going anywhere soon. The paralytic it seems, lived in Capernaum as well. It's not a very big town. I don't think the paralytic was going anywhere. The condition of his paralysis was almost the opposite of an emergency. The very physical condition that he suffered from meant that his circumstances weren't going to change. In fact, that was probably one of the things that made it so awful for him. It was the same day after day after day. And there was no hope for the future. So why was it his friends came to decide, this is important. This can't wait any longer. This is so important, we won't come back and bother Jesus in the morning. We'll go up on the roof and rip a hole. Why was it they couldn't wait for Jesus to finish teaching and for the crowd to go away? I think the urgency was not about this man's physical condition. Later, if you read in Mark 5, Jesus was invited to heal a synagogue official's daughter. And the official pleaded with Jesus he said hurry she's dying there isn't a moment to lose when Lazarus was dying his sisters sent word they said please come and help he's on the verge of death it's a crisis point but in Capernaum that day it wasn't life or death but these men 
felt tremendous pressure to accomplish something quickly. And that concern brought them to Jesus. And I think that's because this wasn't a physical problem. This man was in spiritual crisis. And if you read in Hebrews 4 verse 7, it offers us a warning. It says, Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. There comes a time in almost every relationship where a decision has to be made and often it will change everything. And when God himself draws near, when we hear his voice, postponement can only lead to a hardened heart. I believe the Holy Spirit was talking to this lame man and he simply could not wait. He couldn't wait until later to know what Jesus was going to say to him. His despair, his depression, his bitterness, perhaps even years of having blamed God for his paralysis, the way he was treated by the people around him, the sorrow he experienced day by day, all finally had become so heavy that he realised he couldn't go on anymore. He couldn't go on without some response from this man of God. And so his friends assisted him with this urgent visit. I find it interesting. Can you imagine the chaos that must have been caused with a crowded room for the people by a hole being torn in the roof, by a man being lowered down on a mattress, and yet that doesn't get a mention. Such was the excitement around Jesus that when all this was going on, people still looked at him rather than being distracted. I mean, it's so different from some of our meetings where people will complain if a child makes a noise. Their eyes were focused on Jesus. And as this man was lowered by his friends, immobile as he was laying on this mattress, all he could do was stare up into Jesus' eyes. seems like the two most obvious things in the story went completely unaddressed. Makes it an odd story, but I think it's odd on purpose. Because the missing elements tell us something. They actually point to the main point. The need this man had was for his sins to be forgiven. The paralysis wasn't the main point. The hole in the roof was not something that concerned Jesus. Because people were more important to him. Jesus' focus, then as now, 
was on what was important. The man's spiritual condition. So let's go back to these two questions. The ones Jesus asked for teachers of the law. Because he'd forgiven them the paralytic sins. He'd given him relief from all that desperation over the things that he'd done. All those things that had driven a wedge between him and God. And this man was now free. He was free of this urgent spiritual burden. And the hole in the roof was of no consequence. He'd looked at the man and said, My son. What a tender expression. And then of course the scribes got involved. Tied up in their legalism, they couldn't see past the words he'd used. They'd lost sight of the wonderful transaction that had just occurred with this man's sinful past being totally wiped clean because Jesus had professed to have the authority to forgive others of their sin, an act that only God could do. And so Jesus asked them the first of these two questions. Why are you thinking these things? He knew what they were thinking. Although it says they were thinking them in their hearts. Why is this man a blasphemer? He's claiming to do what only God can do. How dare he? He's being flippant over something that God takes seriously. As I said, I think what he was truly asking is what kind of God do you serve? Jesus had driven demons from people. He'd been teaching them extraordinary truth. And we know that it says he taught with authority, unlike the other teachers. And great crowds of people were now following him to hear what he had to say. John the Baptist, a man of unusual prophetic credentials, had proclaimed him to be the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who comes to take away the sin of the world. What the teachers of the law ought to have asked him, even if they couldn't yet believe, was, what do you mean? How can this be? What new thing might God be doing that we can learn from? But they didn't. They'd already concluded that God does not forgive sins that easily. And that's the kind of problem that religious people always have. The more knowledge they gain and the more they become in churches and Bible studies and groups that teach that sort of stuff, the more they learn to hide their sin rather than see it forgiven. The more acquainted they become with religious hypocrisy, the more certain they are is that God does not want our sins out in the open. He doesn't want to forgive them. That he doesn't want to relieve us of our burden. The weight of sinfulness, of uncertainty and hypocrisy can actually make people excellent church members. I thought that might get a reaction. But actually because they're driven to try and achieve their salvation through works. 
one of the ways that some places manipulate people is to keep them uncertain of their forgiveness. In one sentence, Jesus lifted the entire burden of a lifetime of failure. He said, child, your sins are forgiven. It can't be that easy, can it? The simple point is, do we serve a God who is passionate about forgiving sin, who loves to remove burdens from people, who is generous with grace and mercy, and who characteristically does good for us? Of course we do. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk 